Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashkin Out, episode 47. And as always, I am your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my co-host, my trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say hello, Colin Couchet. I don't know who that is. My real name's Craig so, Wright. So Craig Wright. Stick with this. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really Craig Wright. Okay. Like that's my actual. Why, why the way? Why can't I get that actual name out of my mouth properly? Like every time I pronunciate it, it's like I got like a little thing going on. It's mm-hmm. like one. It's like. Alongside your alias, for too long. I go, I go full Elmer Fudd whenever I try and pronounce his name. I don't understand that one. Um, uh, <laughs> so this episode, uh, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a long time, actually. Um, we have MakerDAO, Nick Kunkel, head of backend services for MakerDAO, and this is a, a system that everyone that has become quite big. In fact, I think the last Alethio uh, Medium blog said they have gained the largest user group so far in terms of decentralized finance, but. It's, 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 it's like, I guess their main product is a stable coin called the DAO, but the way in which it works isn't, isn't straightforward. And I've always wanted to try and get at least a quality exp- uh, explanation or have a conversation with someone about how all of this works and the pieces they're put together and why people back it the way they do. So welcome to the show, Nick. Um, why don't you give us a quick introduction as to like who you are, how you got into space and, uh, and, and we can start from there. Sure. Um, so I got back in the space uh, around like 2016, actually. Um, I was working at IBM on uh, Hyperledger, which is their kind of uh, proprietary uh, kind of private blockchain. Um, and <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, Ethereum was was making the rounds and uh, I, I got hooked on that. And I was telling my boss, hey, you know, I know we've spent a lot of resources on this Hyperledger thing, but you know, Ethereum and like public chains, like this is, you know, really where this is the game changer kind of moment. And, uh, you know, I was always like, shut up, Nick. And uh, eventually I was like, no, you know, you shut up, like I'm going to leave. And uh, and I joined Maker. And, um, you know. <laughs> it's a great story. I, I, it I, sounds I, like you made the right I, choice. My old boss at IBM at, um, at, uh, at Consensus last week. At Walpert? Oh yeah, Warbert. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, it, it was funny because when I left, he told me I was making the biggest mistake of my life, and uh, now he's uh, he's much nicer about it. He's like, you know, good, good, good move. <laughs> a little bit of humble pie there. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's okay, let's uh, okay. So the way I think most people have a view of Maker and Die is that Maker somehow produces Die. Maybe not that's the case. It's clearly not the case. We'll get into that. But uh, what most people are doing in terms of the decentralized finance and, and interacting with DAI is they're basically bonding F to somewhere. We'll get to what that is. Uh, it's, and, it's, and it's over-collateralized. And then by doing that, they mint DAI, which means that they put F somewhere and they get 
75% of that in die. So if you put $150 worth of F and the smart contract we'll talk about, you're going to mint $100 in die as a loan that's collateralized by your Ethereum. And then they do stuff with that. So let's get into how the hell that works. So first, well, off, first off, is that accurate? Is that is that an accurate representation? Because that's what my reading was. That's what I think Corey's reading was. That, that's fairly accurate. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, okay, let's before we get into that part of it, which is kind of like I'd say what most people could consider. I don't even know about that. It's a very interesting part, and that's what most people are using. But it's backed by this massive other system, the MakerDAO. What is that? So, I, I mean, what you have to realize here is we're not trying to be, you know, um, we're not trying to be like a bank run by some, you know, maker corporation. What we've done here is we've created an autonomous set of smart contracts, right, that operate completely independently from, from everything we do, right? So when, when, when you say, for example, someone comes and locks up their ETH and we give them DAI, it's, it's not us giving it to them. It's, it's basically we've enabled people to take out a loan from themselves. And, and that's kind of what I, what I think the, the big game changer is here, right? Um, so, you know, just to kind of reiterate what you said earlier, right? As a user comes and, you know, they, they have some ETH. And, uh, you know, maybe they want to tap into the equity uh, in that ETH, right? They, they don't want to sell, but, uh, but they'd like to tap into some of that equity, right? And we, we allow them to do that. Or maybe they want to, uh, you know, go long on Ethereum. Maybe they want some capital to, uh, to play around with in, in the markets, right? They see a good buying opportunity. So we allow people to tap into the equity in, in their assets. Oh, yeah, hold on. So that's actually the reverse of what I think Corey said. So if you, so like my understanding is that if you, you lock up 150% of the die you receive, so you receive a hundred die if you put in $150, is that, that correct or something? Yeah. That's, that's correct. So, so that's the, so how's that like, not a, like that's not a loan or locking up the collateralized asset. It's like taking less than what the actual collateral is worth. So is that you don't really lose ownership of the collateral, right? It's not like we take away your ETH. The ETH is still yours. It's just you need to pay back your loan in order to get it back. So it's it's essentially a secured uh, a secured loan, if you will, right? On your own on your own asset. Oh. Uh, before we get into the whys, because there's a lot of them, I kind of want I want to get to where Dai comes from and why it's stable, and what Maker is, because there's mm -hmm. a whole other thing. Which, which is the maker token, and that's used for governance over how DAI is minted and the, and the, I guess, the interest rate associated with DAI. So, sure. What is what is that? What is what is maker? How does that work? And how does that how does that function across the like the the set of smart contracts that people are using? So, so what we've really done here is we've identified that there's um, there's a couple different types of users in the system, and so far we've only talked about one. Right. We've talked about the type of person that is trying to effectively, you know, access the equity in their in their ETH. Um, but there there are other users too, right? So for example, there are people who just want to use that. And and this is actually the most common user we have, right? They they don't want to take out a loan, they don't want to like you know, uh, lock up ETH or anything like that. All they want to do is they want to use that, right? So you can Hedge, you can use DAI to hedge, right? So if uh, you think the market is about to turn, 
right? You can sell your ETH into DAI or you can sell your other tokens that you have into DAI and right, and you are protected because DAI is stable. Um, and so that kind of brings into, goes into your question of, well, you know, why is DAI stable and how does this MKR token uh, kind of play, play its role? And the role, the way that I like to think of the MKR token is it's really a way of segregating risk. So as a DAI user, you don't want to have any risk, right? You want to have something stable. So you're trying to get rid of your risk. Well, the Maker token is the exact opposite. Um, it's trying to absorb all of the risk uh, reward of the system. And so it's uh, right. It's it's very volatile in, in that sense because it's it's speculative. Um, so essentially, if the system is run well, and by run well, you know it means that um, you know there's lots and lots of die in circulation, and all that die is generating lots of fees, and all those fees go towards uh, basically uh, buying up and burning the MKR token. Uh, so that makes MKR deflationary if it's run well. If the system is not being run well, um, you know there are um, there's a bunch of underwater loans, and what I mean by that is that um, if we we talked about earlier how you know you need to be minimum 150% collateralized on your loan. Well, the reason we have that is because if ETH drop if the price of ETH drops, right, we need to liquidate your loan. We essentially need to to margin call you, right? Um, and so as long as we margin call you above 100% collateralization, so that's one-to-one -one, you know, value of ETH to the value of the DAI that, that you borrowed, right? You know, the system is fine. But as soon as you cross that threshold where the value of the ETH is worth less than the value of the loan, now you have an underwater loan, right? No one will ever pay back, you know, uh, hundred you know dollars to get back ninety seven dollars worth of ETH, right? It's not rational. So how does the system kind of stay solvent during that period? And that's where the MKR token kind of comes in. So remember I said risk reward. Well, this is the this is the risk. So the MKR token has to cover all of the bad debt. So for example, in the previous example, I said you know ETH uh, your hundred fifty dollars worth of ETH dropped to ninety seven dollars and your loan was $100, that means there's a $3 difference that MKR holders need to cover. The way they cover that is that the system automatically starts minting new MKR and then uh, selling that MKR until the debt is covered. Okay, and that actually makes some sense um, to me. And and I, I, kind of, I kind of like that approach a little in that it puts a speculative side of it really does balance out the, the the lending side and the investment side and the like the growth side with the speculative side and like how how well is the market going to perform and that kind of thing and so you're actually kind of creating a derivative in the maker token whereas the actual die itself is trying to sort of like link the two logical entities of the ethereum and the us dollar uh together so that that, that makes sense to me and it also the whole fact that like yeah if you drop to 97 dollars the whole system needs to kind of compensate for that loss in three dollars et cetera, et cetera, uh, let's, you know, out of like 100 tokens, you lost three dollars, right, whatever. Um, but uh, I think what kind of bothers me about that scenario is that it doesn't, at first blush, sound very like resistant to things like flash crashes. 
And so I'm wondering how does that work in terms so, of like very radical changes that happen suddenly? So, so actually I, I think it is covered. Um, so one, one thing I forgot to mention about the MKR token is, uh, is that it's a governance token. So the reason that why MKR holders are willing to absorb the risk reward of the system is because they're administrating the system. They make all of the important decisions. So they say what type of collateral um, is good collateral uh, for these loans, right? Uh, right now we're just using ETH, but uh, in uh, later, later this year, we'll be releasing multi-collateral die, which will enable all types of, uh, all types of tokens. And so it's governance's job to say, well, uh, which token should we do? What should be the minimum like collateralization ratio? Should it be less than 150%? Should it be 200%? Should it be, you know, 400%? Um, and, you know, what should, the, what should the fees for that particular type of collateral be? And, and these are all kind of things that are relevant to the quality of that collateral, that are relevant to the risk of that collateral. So when you say, oh, well, aren't you guys not accounting for a flash crash? Um, I say we, we do account for a flash crash. So basically in your model, you have to say, well, you know, I think there is a, you know, point, you know, five, seven percent chance that there is a flash crash in this year. And so if we have, you know, this many loans outstanding in this collateral type and we're taking on that type of risk, you know, how much do we have to be minimally collateralized? You know, how many fees do we have to charge to make that worth it? In the end, what MKR holders are doing is they're providing, they're an insurance policy, right? They're basically providing an insurance, you know, for, you know, insuring this collateral. And they're saying, these are the premiums that you have to pay, right? But then, okay. But then you're depending on the MKR users, and I'm not really sure how that's set up at the moment. We could get that into that next. But you're depending on the people who are uh, participants in the MKR token to set the rules for the DAO, correct? So it's it's basically a voting mechanism and an investment mechanism as well. Mm -hmm. So you're basically voting with your money, which I love, by the way. I yep. love that in every form. Whenever it comes out, I think voting with your money is an amazing concept that we need to explore more. But that's another topic. Um, but they're voting with their money through the DAO, um, and um, you're depending on them to make rational decisions or to know all the variables involved with this. So there's a social problem there. Um, and so wouldn't the whole system collapse if that social problem sort of manifests? I don't, I don't think it's a social problem. I think it's a, it's a feedback loop where if MKR holders are not educated in making good decisions and they, you know, don't make data-driven decisions. They make decisions based off of hype. You know, we want to get shitcoin X as collateral, and you know, we want to have the collateralization be super low and the interest be super low. They're going to get screwed, and in that scenario, they kind of deserve it. But the point is that the risk is segregated. So the maker holders making bad decisions—they're the ones that get punished through dilution, right? And someone else can basically come in and watch this and be like, this is being terribly managed. They can buy a bunch of MKR for cheap because it's been so terribly managed. All of the voters that made these terrible decisions, their voting power has been diluted. Um, and now you, uh, you, give the you basically give um, extrinsic value to anyone that can come into the system and start making good decisions. 
Well, what you've just what you just proposed then is a possibility of a hostile takeover of the maker. It, like if 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 a scenario like that were to manifest, I, is that not a fair statement? Hostile takeover. It's it's not a it's it's a plutocracy, right? It's not yeah, a yeah. It's a plutocracy, and it's you vote with your money. Yeah. And if you make good decisions, you get rewarded. And if you make bad decisions, you don't get rewarded. And, uh, you know, from a DAI user's point of view, like the ultimate goal is just that DAI is stable, right? So whatever the money managers kind of have to do on the, the MKR side, that risk is isolated to them. How is DAI stable? I, I mean, you may, have, you may have explained that, but I haven't quite, quite rocked it yet. How, is, how, how are you keeping that peg? Sure. So, so there's a couple of mechanisms we actually use and, and a couple that we have in the pipeline. Uh, so the primary mechanism um, is actually quite intuitive if you think about it. So if the, the, the system itself always kind of views DAI as $1, right? But that may not be in line with what markets are trading at, right? Markets are absolute and they'll, you know, have perfect price discovery and they'll find, you know, what what they think it's worth. So let's cover the scenario where DAI is trading above a dollar in the markets. Well, now there's an arbitrage opportunity here because effectively anyone can mint DAI, right? Anyone can lock up some ETH and mint some DAI and effectively flood the market with this newly minted DAI, right? And so the act of flooding the market and selling it you know, at a premium at this above $1 price is very appealing because after you've you know, dumped a bunch of supply on the market, then you reach parity with the peg again, right? And now you, know, you can basically pay back your loan and you can, you've arbitraged that like, you know, what is it, three cents spread, two cents spread, five cents spread, whatever it is. Uh, the opposite case is when DAI is trading underneath a dollar, right? Um, and when DAI is trading underneath a dollar, you have to understand that every single DAI that's in circulation has been borrowed by someone. Right, so there are constantly people uh, with open loans who are deciding, you know, all the time: should I pay back my loan? Should I not pay back my loan? And if you can pay back your loan at ninety-seven cents on the dollar or ninety-eight cents on the dollar, that's pretty appealing, right? So you effectively, you know, it's effectively a negative interest loan, right? Like, say I borrowed a hundred uh, die yesterday, and today die drops to ninety-eight cents, and I, uh, you know return back, uh, you know, return, I buy back, you know, the, the die for 98 cents. And like, I've now made money from taking out a loan. So, so those are kind of the, the primary mechanisms. Um, the secondary mechanism involves governance. Um, so the secondary mechanism is um, you need to have a balance, like an equilibrium between the demand for taking on leverage and the demand for holding die, right? Like it's a very simple concept, right? It's, it's just supply and demand. Like how do you balance supply and demand? And the supply comes from, you know, how many people are trying to take out, you know, loans uh, with ETH collateral. So they're effectively going ETH, you know, long on ETH, right? Demand for leverage on ETH. And how many people actually just want to hold die, right? That's the, uh, that's the demand. So, what we've seen in the last few months, or, or maybe it was not months, but like uh, the last month or so, was that DAI was trading underneath the peg. Um, you know, it was a, and it was pretty consistent for for a while. You know, we were trading between like ninety six or ninety seven and ninety eight cents. 
And the reason for that was because there was too much demand for creating DAI, right? For taking on leverage versus demand for holding DAI. And this was because the market was, you know, extremely bullish. People thought that, you know, the bottom was in and the market was going to rebound and everyone wanted to be in, you know, on the speculation side, they didn't want to be on the stable hedging side. And so the lever that we have to play with here is that we can control the interest rate uh, on the loans. And so we went all the way, you know, when we launched, we had an interest rate of half a percent. Uh, currently, we have an interest rate of 19.5%. So effectively, every week we have a uh, public governance type of meeting where all of the um, MKR holders kind of meet and discuss, you know, how is the peg doing? Uh, do we need to raise rates? Do we need to lower rates? And, you know, we, we've, we haven't just gone up. Like, we've gone down a couple of times as well when uh, DAI was trading above the peg. Um, and effectively, you, you can look at it like, you know, a loan, you know, going long on ETH, you know, with a 10% annual loan, like that's pretty appealing. But once you start hitting 19.5%, that's not as appealing to, to many people. And so that's how you suppress this demand for creating new DAI. And that's by suppressing that demand, that's how you've reached that equilibrium state around a dollar. Quick question. Um, is the interest rate dynamic? Is it variable across the lifetime of a loan or is it, is it static yeah. on when you make yeah. it? It's it's a dynamic uh, it's a dynamic rate, um, so so that's an interesting point you bring up, right? And it, ha it has to be dynamic because otherwise, right? If we change the interest rate only on new loans coming in, right? That doesn't give us the the oomph that we need, right? To get existing uh, users to close out their positions, right? Like it, it has to be that way. It just so, seems as though like no one's willing to give up their loans. Exactly. Well, if you think about it, the stability fee is 19.5% annually right now. What does that mean? It mean? If someone takes out a loan, that means they think ETH will go up more than 19.5% in a year from now. Uh, and, you know, I, I can't blame them. Like, I, you know, I would imagine a good portion of people are over leveraged in a sense that, like, they're, like, they basically. Okay, I imagine this is a scenario based on my understanding of how things work so far is that people have uh, collateralized their ETH for DAI and then done it again to buy more ETH and then collateralized that for more DAI and, and uh, maybe a number of times. So they're basically like a few iterations in associated with their original collateral. What type of effect do you think that could have? Or like, what, 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 is there danger in that? There has to be danger in that. So, so yes and no, right? So the, you can achieve up to, you know, by doing this cycling that you just talked about, by locking up ETH, you know, drawing die, by using that die to buy more ETH, locking up that ETH, drawing even more die, right? You can achieve up to 3X leverage. But the thing is that no matter what, you're always 150% collateralized. And right, and if you have, if you're riding on that max 3X leverage, you know, if ETH even goes down, you know, a penny, Right, you get margin called. Um, now, the risk that you're talking about is um, the kind of, uh, you know, what, what do you call this in, in trading? You call it kind of cascading kind of liquidations, right? Where, uh, you know, if one major whale, say, uh, with a huge CDP gets liquidated, right? And now you have, you know, a million dollars of ETH get get liquidated at once, right? And that pushes the price of ETH down even more, which causes more positions to get liquidated, 
and so on and so forth. That is effectively already factor accounted for in the risk model that you use, that governance uses when defining the risk parameters for Ethereum. Effectively, that is the liquidity risk of Ethereum. It is how much, you know, how much ETH, the way you can think about liquidity risk is how much ETH can you dump on the market without completely, you know, bottoming out the, the price of ETH uh, below, below our buffer. So uh, we have this concept of a debt ceiling in our system. And so it is the maximum amount of die that can be minted for a particular asset. Currently for Ethereum, the debt ceiling is 100 million die. So right now the die supply is at around 80 million, 81 million. Um, a few months back, we were at 97 million. <clears throat> and uh, people were asking us, are you going to raise the uh, debt ceiling? Are you going to raise the debt ceiling? Right? Because people were concerned that they wouldn't be able to take out, uh, that they wouldn't be able to generate any more die. And at the time, you know, we're like, we were looking at the liquidity kind of of, of ETH and we're like, no, you know, we, we kind of feel comfortable with it at, at 100 million right now. But you also have to realize that the liquidity risk is a constantly changing thing, right? ETH doesn't have the same liquidity every single day, right? You know, there are days with super, super high volume. There are days with no volume. There are days where, you know, there are very, very fine spreads and days where the market is more thin. So it's, it's up to MKR holders to constantly be reevaluating these things and making adjustments, uh, you know, constantly. Okay. So, I want to get a little bit into the user experience in a moment, but before I do that, I think it's important that I cover like how, so when I hear like I'm locked up my collateral and I'm received die, is that die tradable, exchangeable? I mean, like, because to me, that sounds like it would mean that you can't really do much with it. It just says that you have this much in value locked up. Um, but I, I'm not really sure how that, like the system changes when you're able to trade it. So I'm not even sure if that's possible. Like, you so so no as a user when you when you lock up ethan you create die that's your die you can do anything it's, it's, you want it's with an erc20 token and we use it and it's get used a lot right and i've seen that so but but the problem is that, that i'm trying to figure out is like okay if i spend that die like i said then that means that i no longer have enough let's just say it could drop my collateral so that i no longer have enough is that right or do i am i misunderstanding like if i well, the the die that you created is completely fungible with every other die. And the loan has nothing, is not interlinked with your die. They're completely disconnected. So okay. if any, if, if your loan position gets liquidated because the price of ETH dropped, um, it doesn't affect the die that was taken out with through that loan. I see. So basically I would still have that die. That die is mine. Yeah, that's, that, that's, die that, that die is mine. If it, if, if it drops below, then basically they'll just take off the amount of the drop and be like, okay, you, you receive like, let's say half your assets of what you collateral. We're calling your margin. Here's the rest of your money back, but we're keeping the rest. It, exactly. Okay. okay. That's about, simple. I get that. Where does that margin called F go? So it goes to anyone. Um, so effectively what we do right now is we have uh, oracles that are constantly reporting the price of ETH, right? And, uh, and that's how we kind of know that we need to, that we need a margin call someone. Um, and, and an interesting point here, it's not us 
doing the margin calling. It's actually uh, kind of random like people and you know funds and organizations and bots. Um, and the reason why people are doing these margin calls is because they get to have first dibs on buying the collateral effectively. So what we do when a position gets margin call is we sell it at 3% below the price that the oracles are reporting. So that means that you know if ETH is trading at $100, uh, we sell the ETH at $97 and anyone can buy it. Um, and so there is a huge ecosystem of bots which are doing arbitrage. Um, and they'll, you know, they'll look at Uniswap, they'll look at Kyber, they'll look at ETH to die, they'll look at Radar Relay, they'll look at DDEX, they'll look at, you know, all the 0x stuff. Um, they're basically trying to arbitrage, right, the ETH that we're selling with ETH somewhere else. So they have to buy it with Maker? They have to buy it with DAI. Okay. So this is, so right, your uh, loan is denominated in DAI, so you, we need to, the system needs to recover 100 DAI. And so we just sell your ETH until someone pays us a hundred die for your ETH. Then and now you burn that die. Die, and now, now we're we're quit. Okay. And for right. that three percent difference, uh, what what who who makes up for that difference? Because you're burning that die. It's gone from circulation. Is that something that uh, maker like the maker community absorbs? Uh, well, technically, it's the the person who locked up the the ETH in the loan, right? That that person is absorbing that that three percent loss, um, and it's effectively just a disincentive to ever let your your loan get liquidated, right? Yeah, of course. Um, so um, one other thing that I want to mention here is that uh, this mechanism of liquidating um, of liquidating these loans is about to be deprecated in our next version of uh, of Dai in, in multi collateral Dai, and instead it's going to be replaced with an auction mechanism. So there will be um, on-chain auctions uh, that you know have uh, that are basically selling this ETH, and anyone can participate. And effectively, what happens is people are, you know, we need to recover a hundred die, right? That's uh, that's what we need to recover, and we have you know, let's say a hundred fifty dollars worth of ETH. So we put all of the ETH in the auction, and we wait for people to bid, and we say, hey, we need a hundred die. So maybe. You bid 75 die, I bid 95 die, and then Colin comes in and is like, I'll, I'll bid 100 die. Um, and now the auction changes into a reverse auction where, okay, every we've reached this 100 die level and everyone, we don't need to make more than 100 die. Now the auction is saying, how much less than the total ETH are you willing to take? So. You know, Colin's like, well, I want all the ETH. I'm like, well, you know, I only really want, you know, you know, uh, I'll take, you know, $120 worth of the ETH for a hundred die. And then, you know, you come in and it's like, you know what, I'll pay like $104 for, you know, $100 worth of ETH. And no one outbids you, great, you won the auction. So this way, um, auctions are kind of a pure price discovery model. And uh, I think, not having liquidations linked to oracles is going to be a lot more uh, flexible when there's uh, liquidity crunches, right? So you you talked about earlier, you know, what happens if you know a bunch of CD, you know, a bunch of loans get liquidated, right? And there's these cascading liquidations. Well, if you sell that ETH at a fixed price, right, you may not get enough buyers, 
But if you have auctions, then for every single auction, you theoretically have perfect price discovery. Yeah. Uh, well, auctions is perfect price discovery is something that's kind of like, I'm, I mean, it's it's approximate enough. It counts. In reality, it works really well because it, it does create a marketplace. It does depend on the nature of the participants in the auction. Um, it doesn't necessarily represent value on the whole, um, but it is a really good way of just getting things done. So I really like that. Um, again, auctioning is just another type of voting system in my mind because money is just voting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, voting um, money. yeah, pretty much. So um, what I what I am curious about is how you chose that auction model, um, you know, um, and whether or not the the actual auction bids themselves are visible and how you built that. Um, so in other words, is this an on-chain auction? Um, if so, how are the transactions completed? Can people see the bids? Are these closed or open bids? And then, um, what determines when the, when the reverse auction occurs? Is it uh, parity or is it time frame or both? Okay. Uh, great questions, by the way. Um, so the, the, everything is completely on-chain. Um, not controlled by us and completely transparent. So when we launch multi-collateral die, right, there will be a kind of auction dashboard that anyone can go and participate in auctions. They'll see every auction, they'll see every bid, they'll see who is making these bids. Um, you know, part of being, you know, on Ethereum means every single action is fundamentally transparent, which I think is great. Um, so on your kind of questions on the specifics of auctions, um, the auctions have a kind of maximum, uh, time that they can run, uh, but they also have a time after bid expiration. So for example, an auction could run for 24 hours, uh, max maximum duration, but from a, uh, bid duration point of view, it could, the auction could end at any time in that 24 hour period after no one has bid for more than one hour, right? So, so what you'll see very quickly is that uh, bids will come in, you know, immediately um, because there, there's an incentive to, to kind of be first, right? Because uh, there's, there's also this kind of skip factor, right? Uh, if you, you have to be at least this much over the, uh, the previous bid, right? Like you can't just, you know, increase it by like one Fenny or one Satoshi, right? You know, there's a, some constant factor that you have to be larger than, than the previous bid. And the reason that you also don't have this kind of, you know, micro, you know, micro, micro, like outbidding, outbidding, outbidding thing is because there are gas costs that people are realizing, right? So it's actually from a, you know, profit loss point of view, it's actually very cost ineffective to have to do a lot of bids. Uh, so the, the simulations that we've done show that people are, you know, going to come in around like, you know, 80, 85%, you know, immediately with, with the first bid um, to try and, uh, and, and lock in some, some kind of prime positioning there. Does that, does that make sense or do I need to call? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so what made you choose the the auction? Like what other auctions uh, methodologies did you look at? And uh, why did you ultimately go with the, once we reach limit, we go into reverse auction uh, system mechanism? Um, I think that makes a lot of sense, but 
there's there's a lot of different ways to do an auction. I mean, a lot. And mm -hmm. so I was just wondering how you arrived at this particular choice. I mean, I, I agree. We actually use um, different, there's three different types of auctions in our system, actually. Uh, the liquidation of the uh, collateral is only one of them. Um, for example, we also have the uh, this maker buy and burn mechanism, right? So I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, all of these uh, outstanding loans are generating fees, right? And those fees are used to effectively buy up MKR and then destroy that MKR. And right now there's less MKR supply. So each MKR is more valuable, right? Because it has a larger claim on the fees now and it has a larger kind of voting power than it previously did. Um, so the way that we do that buy and burn is effectively that, well, we just got paid a bunch of die, you know, in fees, and now we have a bunch of die. And so we sell that die in an auction and people have to bid in MKR. And so we say, hey, you know, we have, you know, um, we have 30 die that we've collected in fees and, you know, we want to get some MKR. Um, you know, how much MKR is anyone willing to give us uh, for this 30 die? You know, people will bid, 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 and eventually, you know, someone, uh, someone wins that auction. Um, the third type of auction is what, you know, this, uh, this MKR dilution that we talked about, right? So what happens when you have underwater loans and the system needs to kind of uh, uh, mint new MKR and recover some dye in order to make up that difference in the, in the loan. Um, and so the way that auction works is that the system said, this auction says, you know, we need to raise, you know, 20 dye. Um, how little MKR do we need to give you uh, for you to give us 20 dye? So everyone is bidding 20 dye, 20 dye, 20 dye. But, you know, Colin, you may say, well, I want five maker. And then Corey can come in and be like, you know what, I'll do it for just one maker. And then I'll come in and be like, I'll do it for like half of a maker. And, uh, you know, if no one underbids me, now I, you know, pay my 20 die for half of a maker. So there's a lot of different um, auction formats in our system filling like very, very particular type of roles um, due to kind of their, their unique characteristics. Yeah, and I don't want to pick on um, pick on like the auction part parts of this too much. And there's a lot we still have to yet to cover. But yeah, one of the things I'm thinking is like, God, if we had better privacy mechanisms or the transactions themselves could be like hidden until a reveal, like we would have basically availability for things like Vickery auctions, which would save people a ton on transaction fees, and so and also would arrive at a pretty reasonable price. So I was just kind of curious what the thought process behind you know the reverse auction the uh, first auction and the reverse, the natural auction and the reverse auction was, but um, it sounds like a lot of that revolves around just the nature of the decentralized system that you're using as a core truth mechanism, um, not having closed bids readily available in any like real way. Um, or maybe, maybe it is, and I just don't know about it, but I just don't see a current way to do that. So I was just kind of curious. Um, I yeah, I'd, go ahead. <clears throat> Sid Makers is, is a, Basically, the uh, outstanding loans or the fees that happen is used to buy up Maker and burn it. So that what I, is what I consider a sink, right? If you think of like uh, mm -hmm. kind of try, try to typical terms for modeling things, you have sinks and sources. That would be a sink. So like I'm trying to is, is there is there an alternative source to that type of thing? Because you don't have like a stable equilibrium for this for these for this 
value flow, then is there a potential future where Maker is, is like there's the circulation of Maker is so low that it's it's not usable? Um, I, I wouldn't say that. So I, I think the the way that you have to think about it is that these uh, right stability fees are constantly, constantly, constantly coming in, and so these auctions for buying MKR, um, you know, in exchange for selling these die, is um, is happening all the time. It's happening continuously. So the system is essentially the permanent buyer of MKR, and uh, so you know as you know, well, right now there are 1 million makers. So, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of maker in circulation that people can sell. But as, you know, more maker gets destroyed, um, yeah, there will be less maker available to purchase. And that's naturally how you get a price increase in, in MKR. Um, it's not bad that there's less maker in circulation, um, right? You know, MKR goes, has, you know, uh, is a token with 18 decimals. Okay. Well, we can even imagine a world where there's only one MKR left, but you can split it up, you know, to one to 10 to the minus 18. And uh, I, just, I, I think about that a lot of the times because a lot of people talk about burning mechanisms without actually thinking about what the total supply could eventually dwindle down to. Say, for instance, this works mm -hmm. for 50 years and you have this constant slow burn of things. If you don't have that ability to break things apart, appropriately because like the, like the 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 price of a single die is arbitrary if it could be broken up into 18 decimal places it's just a unit for for like that's easy for humans to understand um but unless you have that ability to break it apart then you may have a potential problem way down the line if if incredibly successful and i just try and always consider those types of things because ecology theory works really well for these types of value flows and trying to figure out how token economics works and I'm not sure, like, I, Maker's a huge project. You have a tremendous amount of like, quality people who are looking into these things, but there are projects that aren't. I was just kind of curious on, like, what what the answer to that was. And, like, if there's any, like, you know, runaway, runaway either inflations or deflations of a, of a given token, what that could mean for the system as a whole. Like, like... It's it's tough to suss out, and I think that's one of those things that I was trying to get at earlier is that it seems like the the crypto economic model behind this is extraordinarily complex. So how do you vet this model, right? I mean, like, how do you like, look, who can look at this and actually go, we know this works um, to any sort of degree of confidence who's, who's behind that. Uh, is that kind of going to help you with your confidence question there, Corey, or not? Uh, I didn't know that. What's like, interesting I mean, about a lot of this is that you, you get a lot of really great price discovery and and metrics from the use of the system as it's been used for a lot of times. So you can see right. stuff in action, right? Like the, the Oracle in itself is a really good yeah. way of figuring out what the actual like decent price of Ethereum should be, based right. on how, especially when you have these these, uh, these auctions. And so in a lot of ways, the maker system is, is doing natural price discovery of Ethereum based on how people feel in the entire market. But what's interesting to me is that you say of Ethereum, and that was kind of going to lead into one of well, my other questions, is like, if you open up other assets, is this a decentralized exchange? Nick, what do you think about that? Is this actually a decentralized exchange in principle, but you're starting with a very simple concept of a stable coin that's revolving around the US dollar as I, the basis for building that out? I, I don't think we're, we have a decentralized exchange. Uh, I think we have kind of a decentralized credit facility, right? If we yeah. think it's like... Um, what I'm really excited about is the fact that, you know, right now, kind of crypto project tokens are, are only the first step here, 
you know, you have a lot, the kind of great promise of blockchain is that instead of having kind of localized markets, we have globalized markets, right? So instead of, you know, an Amazon share just trading on the New York Stock Exchange, you know, during open hours, you can have a tokenized representation of an Amazon stock, you know, as a uh, as an ERC-20 token. But then that's kind of what I'm saying, isn't it? So like, let's just say the die is the foundation for what the principle of value determinator for what this is. Okay. And yeah, that, that is stable relative to us dollars, which may or may not be relevant in a hundred years, who knows, but let's just say for right now it's stable in terms of us dollars. Okay. Anybody could take that die and then uh, go and bid on um, collecting uh, like collateral or, or some sort of value from another, another uh, system, another, uh, like let's say instead of ether, it'll be I don't care uh, Litecoin, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I am actually using the same token which I used, which I put my collateral in and got, or I purchased off a, a, bro a broader market, but I actually got this die in hand. It's given to me, uh, or I if in some manner I can actually use that to purchase another asset. How mm -hmm. is that not an exchange? There's also margin trading. There's there's lending. There's speculation. Like it has a lot of the features of a decentralized exchange. Um, only it's logical instead of like some sort of coordinated centralized effort, I mean, which I guess is the point of a decentralized exchange to begin with. So like, can you differentiate, uh, maybe I'm missing the point here, but to me, it sounds a lot like you're building towards an actual decentralized exchange. I, I, mean, I, I think we're definitely enabling um, marketplaces, um, which I, I think is amazing, but we're not hosting the marketplace, right? Yeah, I agree. We're, we're, giving, we're giving people access to credit and what they do with that die, right, is up to them. Whether they want to go on some decks and then buy more tokens, whether they want to go to Coinbase and convert that into dollars and go purchase a, a car or a home or, um, you know, just pay some bills, um, you know, that's that's kind of where where our role kind of ends is we give you the die now you go and use it. Yeah, and so basically you built the infrastructure. Behind a decentralized exchange is what I'm kind of hearing. Then, well, it's something that's it's, it's it's actually building the exchange required. itself. It's right? required like, for a quality decentralized exchange to yeah. have some type of. Uh, I guess, so, like what most trading things do, like when they first started, you either had to peg to the Bitcoin. So all trading pairs were pegged to BTC, yep. and then people started doing like stable coins like Tether, which we all could kind of yeah. scoff at if we want to, but. Like you need something to peg every trading pair to. And what's nice about mm -hmm. DAI is that at least in, in, in the future of DAI, it'll be multi-collateral, which means it's not relegated to the risk of a single entity. It's, 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 it's potentially much more stable than all other things, not relying upon a single thing to make it stable. And so, so that's actually a good point. Um, so, and, and another kind of uh, stability mechanism that, that we didn't touch on earlier. Right. So as soon as you have more types of collateral than just ETH, now the job of NKR holders is almost to kind of do a portfolio management strategy, where if you take all of, let's say you have 10 different types of collateral, it's how do we make this entire portfolio of collateral uh, and optimize it for the least risk? So maybe we only want Ether to take up, you know, 14% of that, you know, of the total portfolio. And so we cap the, this debt ceiling I was talking about earlier, we cap the maximum amount of DAI you can mint um, against Ether, you know, at, you know, say some number. And, you know, then you say, well, there's this other token, Digix, you know, and gold is not, you know, correlated, you know, the price of gold is not correlated with uh, the prices of crypto. 
And so, oh, you know, we probably want a little bit bigger exposure of, you know, digits. So maybe we say 20% of the total collateral portfolio should be digits because, uh, because it allows us to de-risk the portfolio. And what you'll find is that even if you add risky types of collateral, as like, say, for example, you have something super, super volatile, like, uh, I don't know, like a... Uh, just make it up. Doesn't matter. Tron, 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 Right? Um, it's not bad to add that as a collateral type. There is no bad collateral. There is only not sufficiently accounting for the risk, right? So you can say, okay, we're only going to give you a quarter of a percent total exposure in the total collateral portfolio. And you know what? We're going to charge you 50% interest and you need to be 300% collateralized. Right. So it's a hedge fund. Yeah. So as long as you adequately account for the risk, you can actually like nothing is bad. Every like there's nothing good, nothing bad. It's just all numbers. And you'll need good models in the governance part to then uh, to then assess that risk. If you don't have. Which goes back to the previous question we had, which yeah. is like, we're not sure like how these maker people are going to react to like this kind of stuff. Well, my question but, there is like once you do multi-collateral die, people start doing doing these risk models. Does a bad choice on a single a collateral affect the other the other ways of the other tokens like this well, say you say you you have a terrible risk assessment for one of the uh situations and, those, and that just falls flat does that really really screw over the rest of the makers ecosystem it only affects mkr token holders yeah but like one of them so you really need to like get them all right like i'm trying to think of like is there a way to like because in, in a way Doing multi-collateral die is a way of diversifying your risk across multiple different asset classes or multiple assets, yeah. right? That have different yeah. risk profiles. But if, say, for instance, if if it so so happens you screw up the risk assessment of an ultra volatile thing, you don't want it to like have a leveraged effect on the rest of the ecosystem. You would like it only to be relative to whatever. The thing is, it doesn't have a leveraged effect. So, like, say, like you know this Tron coin that we uh, gave a quarter of a percent exposure in our portfolio, right? Completely falls flat and goes to zero. That's okay because it's only a quarter percent of the total portfolio. So there's a very minimum amount of like NKR that needs to get diluted. Okay. So what, what you're kind of going into is what if they get it like completely wrong, yeah. right? Like what if they thought this thing, you know, was super safe and it got, you know, should occupy 10% of the collateral portfolio and, you know, really should only occupy that quarter of a percent. I mean, in that case, yeah, like they, they screwed up and they're going to get, MKR is going to get diluted when that inevitably, uh, you know, all those loans fall flat. So I think the question that I, I would want to ask as a person participating in this is how do I prevent myself from being subject to the tragedy of the commons? Can you explain I, that I, a little, little more detail, Colin? Bunch of bunch of idiots, or a cabal of idiots, or a bunch of people who are manipulators in some way, just maybe socially engineer a bad narrative or something, come in, create something that actually hurts my my standing. Okay, mm -hmm. um, how as an independent user, as somebody who's just like oh, just a guy in his room, like who happen to have enough you know die to make this interesting to me, um, how can I prevent myself from being damaged by them making poor choices on behalf of me? So as, as a die holder, you're really, you're actually really safe because you have Sorry, this, maker. You have this maker. token, which has a market cap of like 650 million, 
which uh, you know can get diluted a lot to cover you. So right, think of it this way. There's 80 million DAI out there backed by $500 million worth of ETH, which in turn is backed by another $650 million worth of MKR. Like as a die holder, like, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, when companies go bankrupt, right, there's an order of, uh, you know, there's a hierarchy in which creditors get paid out first. Mm-hmm. Die holders are number one in the system, always, 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 always. So First in the tranche on the CDN, gotcha. Exactly. So as a die holder, even if the system goes tits up, you get your $1 back. Um, so that's, that's, that's paramount. So what um, I think so I really meant maker. I said die. I apologize. If you're a maker holder and you'd see like, it's not a passive job. This is not a token that you just kind of like buy and hold in your portfolio and like see how it does in five years. This is a very active type of thing because there are constantly decisions being made. And if you see bad decisions being made and you know, you'd re- recognize that they're bad, but you, you know, you're uh you know, you mentioned tragedy of the commons, right? You have all the, uh, the minions voting for something and, and you're like, no, this is terrible. Then you should sell. And it's profitable for you to sell, right? Because you can buy back in later after the effects of uh, the, the negative repercussions of that decisions have played out. Uh, so that's a great model in theory. And I would imagine people, it's the rational way to do things. Is that what you're seeing in terms of the use of, ma- of maker holders? Like, what percentage of voting are you getting from the total amount of maker? So uh, we, it's been ramping up for a while. I, I think on-chain governance has been, right, uh, has had traditionally very, very low rates of participation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the maximum we've gotten thus far has been out of the total 1 million maker, we got 185,000 uh, MKR to vote. Um, and so, so that's about 18.5%. Um, what I really like about that though is that um it does not include the mkr that we have in our debt fund which is about i think it's a little less than three hundred thousand mkr right so really um it's if you look at it the total of 70 and if 180k is voting that means we're getting about 30 percent almost 30 percent of all the mkr voting um also the VCs who have uh, and funds who have acquired MKR have not started voting yet. It's locked up, uh, I assume, based on their... And Drayson, they have not voted. And they have significant, you know, I mean, you can look up the token contract, right? Uh, it's all transparent, so you can see exactly how much they have. Um, so they haven't started voting yet either. So in terms of the, the little guy, um, you know, voting... Um, we're seeing what I think is among the highest kind of rates of voter participation in the entire space. Uh, I guess that number is like the, the effect of circulation isn't quite shown by the number of maker being used. It's if you kind of exactly. So what are so like this is an engineering podcast after all, and the crypto economics is, is extremely <laughs> interesting. In fact, it's super interesting because engineering and crypto economics are beca- are, are so closely intertwined, especially at this point in history. That may not be true forever, but for right now, it's like you cannot be an engineer without being aware of the crypto economic side of the thing that you're building. And I find that very fascinating, but we've had almost an entire hour of podcasts in our hour long podcast talking about almost purely the crypto economic side. Let's talk that. a little. Let's, I do, too, but I really need to know some stuff about the engineering. Your back end services lead. Tell mm-hmm. us about the maker backend. Why can we trust this? Tell us about the oracles. What are you using for those? Like what? Um, what is it built in? How do you? 
how do you keep things honest? If you're, uh, if MakerDAO is a smart contract and it resides on Ethereum, uh, how do you integrate other coins into this scenario when they don't have that same, you know, uh, like uh, facility available? So maybe. what 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 is this? Is that so, okay? First off, I want to I want to maybe start. We're we're almost at an hour here, and that's a lot to discuss. Would it be worthwhile to just have a whole other podcast on engineering? Um, I'm I'm happy to come back. Colin, what do you think about that? Like basically, like we just force people to listen to this one so they get the concept of Maker before. Disguise like how they're able to do this type of things and the guarantees. I'm down for a part two. Yeah, sure, let's do it. I, I think I think I don't want to I don't want to rush this, right? I think this is an important concept. It's Maker is a is a very complicated system, and it's, and it's in my opinion done very well. I would like to maybe try this again and discuss kind of the engineering side of this. Yeah, that that sounds great to me. If if your if your users aren't sick of hearing me by now, like uh, oh no, I guarantee oh, no, no, people no, want to know this. Not. No, 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 no. I've, yeah. I've already had plenty of people try and say like, you should get Maker on because I have no fucking clue how they work, and, and and it's just it's being used a lot. Dies being passed around. I manage a lot of Gitcoin bounties at Status, and it, it's that's what everyone wants in terms of like like a like a usable currency that they can I guess hedge or feel comfortable with the value they get based on. When they work, start doing work, things like that. So there's a lot of use cases here. Uh, to wrap up, maybe we'll start with we'll just uh, leave with like, is there anything that you wish we would have asked you that we didn't get around to that we're not going to talk about in the next hour? Oh man, um, kind of the where you know we, we've talked about where things are now. I'm I want to talk about where things are going. Perfect. You know all the kind of exotic type of things that you can build on top of Dai, like the entire financial system like this entire ecosystem of like derivatives and swaps and everything you know contracts for differences everything is based on having kind of a stable coin as a primitive and so as soon as you've built that it's really like opening pandora's box and you can build all kinds of neat stuff on top of it yeah this year maybe the last of the last part of last year is definitely like a, the rise of stable coins or better stable coins or an attempt to be a better stablecoin. And I think that's Rick speaking to the importance of um, its requirement to build financial systems. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, they're going to see a battle there in terms of who, like maybe market share of stablecoins. But based on the way Ethereum works, this seems like the best way to do it in a decentralized market driven fashion. I, I certainly think so. Like, of course, I'm. I'm, I'm pro decentralization in a lot of contexts, so maybe I'm biased there. But uh, Colin, it's, it, what, what, what are you most excited about? What do you want to see built uh, first? First, um, I mean, there's a lot of low hanging fruit here. So I, I think you guys touched on earlier, like, oh, these are variable rate loans. Um, you know, most people when they take out a loan, they don't want a variable rate loan, right? They yeah, I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, like that's kind of part of the problem with the financial yeah. crisis. They, they, they they but but the thing is, that's not really a problem. So what you can do is, um, basically, some third party entity can just use our infrastructure as a back end and say uh, and calculate the risk. You know, what is the risk that the uh, the rates is going to change, you know, in the next year. And, you know, what is kind of the bounds of what it would change to. And so, you know, and if the rate right now is 19 and a half percent, someone may go, hmm, like, I think, you know, the rate's still gonna go up later this year, but how high will it go? 
maybe it'll go up to maybe there's like a 40% chance it goes all the way up to 28 or something like that. And so they'll calculate that risk and they'll be like, okay, so, you know, if I sell it at a fixed rate to the user at 24 and a half percent, I can, I can make money. So you see a lot of things like that. That seems like an obvious thing to do. Absorb the risk of the variability of the rate and we'll offer it to users, you know, repackaged again as a fixed rate loan. Yeah, I could see a lot of things built on top of this. I just like it for escrow. I mean, mm-hmm. For any any type of escrow service, you, you when you when you enter into a contract, that that money uh, gets put up, but you would like to know that the value of whatever service you're rendering is going to be the same when you're done rendering it, when that when that money gets released. So, so for example, yeah, die die on on Augur, I think is a great fit, right? Yeah. Who wants to speculate on you know half of an ETH when you can say no, I want to you know have like a five thousand dollar position on this, right? I mean, what's stopping PayPal from doing a lot of these things right now is the fact that they can't reliably model around the price of a coin. If you're able to model around the die, there's really no. It's basically a bridge between PayPal and the crypto world. Like that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And maybe yeah, and like that's what we need. And, um, and we talk about adoption, and like that's the missing key. That's why people have been working on things like Tether, is because they know that's the that's the missing link between is the, is that stablecoin. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. It's very difficult to determine, especially from a one-hour interview, reading a white paper and a purple paper, whether or not this actually works in practice. Mm-hmm. But I think the the like the the and it's because there's so many details involved with this, so many attack vectors, social attack vectors, and like I, I don't know enough about the the actual trust side of it yet, which is what I'd love to get into in the next episode mm-hmm. with you. Um, but on at first blush, it seems reasonable, um, and so that's exciting because a lot of things haven't been. I've talked to I've I was in a Boston at a um, at a meetup uh, for crypto and. Um, and they basically were like um, uh, talking, I can't remember what the name of the company was, but they were talking about like locking up literal digital cash in their bank. And that was what they're going to use to collateralize a uh, stable coin for, you know, uh, for mm-hmm. Bitcoin. And I'm like, that just doesn't fly. It doesn't work. So this is taking a completely decentralized, a completely open market, a completely crypto economic approach to it. And I like that. And that's exciting to me, but I need to see it play out before I have too much faith because there's so many variables involved with something like this. So, uh, but that's just me. A lot of people are not like as cautious as I am. So that's just where I'm kind of going on this. And I'm really excited about this project. I think it's going to be amazing, especially when it works out, which it eventually will, because we'll just fix it if anything's not working right right so yeah um that's sorry did that did that end on a down or an up note i can't find, i can't freaking tell um, <laughs> but but yeah i'm looking forward to to talking to you again especially about uh, some of the more um architectural side of things awesome yeah yeah guys thanks thanks for having me around this was uh this was pretty awesome definitely i look forward to the next one too and uh guys if you enjoyed this Click the like button. Stay tuned for part two, which we'll schedule out and get to you as soon as possible. Um, yeah, see you soon. Bye.